theyeshiva.net. Okay, good morning everybody and welcome. Today's class is dedicated in the loving memory of Rabbi Avraham ben Rabbi Yitzchok, Zechreina Levracha, for the Yartzad on Yutes Shvat, Tehei Nishmas Eitzrura, B'Tzrur HaChayim. So that great moment, really the greatest moment of history occurs in Pashas Yisrael when Hashem reveals himself at Mount Sinai and communicates to the Jewish people, Anoichi Hashem Alekecha, I am your God who has taken you out of Egypt, and all of the Aseris Hadibris, the Ten Commandments. And when the Torah finishes describing that moment, there is a unique scene that unfolds. It says the entire nation saw the sounds and the lightning, and the voice, the sound of the shofar, and the smoking mountain, the nation saw this. Vayanu'u, they, they trembled, they were shaken, and they stood from far. They speak to Moshe and they say, you speak to us and we'll listen. We don't want God to speak directly with us because we may die. Moshe responds, and I'm going to quote, this is Shmois Chaf Yud Zayin, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, towards the end of Yisrael, Vayoymer Moshe al ha'am, al tiro, ki levavur nasais eschem boha Elohim, uvavur tiye yirasay al penechem levilti sechetahu. And Moshe tells the nation, don't be afraid, don't be scared, It's in order to elevate you. Nasais comes from the word nase, arim nisi, which means to elevate, like an elevated banner is called nase, arim nisi. It's in order to elevate you, nasais eschem, that God appeared, that God came. And in order that his yira, his fear, or his awe should be on your face, on your presence, so that you do not sin. That's Moshe's response. So right after Matan Torah, this is the first message Moshe tells the Jewish people. They are overwhelmed from the experience. They're standing from the distance. Moshe says, don't be afraid. Altiro, Hashem has appeared here and came to elevate you in order that his fear should be on you that you don't sin. And the commentators ask two fascinating questions, two very intriguing questions. First of all, rarely will you have one verse and one sentence that appears at least to be a blatant contradiction. Listen to his words. Moshe says, don't be scared. I don't want you to have yira. I don't want you to be scared. I don't want you to have fear. God came here to elevate you so that his fear should be on you. You just said, Altiro, I don't want you to have Yira. I want you to know that God appeared in order that you should have Yira, in order that you should have fear on your face that you don't sin. It's not like two verses or two chapters or two parshas. The same pasuk in the same sentence. I don't want you to have Yira. I just want you to know that God came here so that you should have Yira. That's question number one. Question number two is on the very words, even without the contradiction. Altiro, don't have yira. Like I don't want you, I don't want you to fear. 
And the question here is, there is actually a mitzvah saseh. There is a positive commandment. It's one of the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah. Es Hashem Eloikecha Tira. You should have yira, the same words tira, you should have yira, fear or awe from Hashem. True, the mitzvah is recorded much later in Parshas Veschanan, which is going to take place 40 years from now. But it's one of the 630 mitzvahs that were given to Moshe Rabbeinu on Mount Sinai, right after Matan Torah, the next 40 days, called the mitzvah of Yira Hashem, as Hashem Alekechatira. How does Moshe Rabbeinu here, to quote one of the commentators, How does Moshe push them away and try to distance them and have them reject what would become one of the mitzvahs, one of the commandments, as Hashem Alekechatira, when he says, Al Tiro, don't have Yira. Especially when they were experiencing that Yira. It seems like a wonderful thing. Right in the beginning of Matan Torah, it says, when they heard the sounds and they saw the lightning and they saw the cloud on the mountain and the voice sound of the shayfah, the entire nation in the camp experienced this tremendous sense of, of harada, of fear, of awe, of trembling. That's what they experienced. In other words, they were experiencing yira. They fulfilled the mitzvah of a sashem elekecha tira. And here Moshe says, Altiro, I don't want you to have Yira. I want to share with you today two interpretations. The interpretations are on two different levels. As always, they're connected, but they're on two different layers. The first one comes from the Svasemes, and the second comes from the Baal Hatanya. The Svasemes is a commentary on Chumash. It's also a commentary on Gemara, but we'll study the commentary on Chumash that was written by the second Rebbe of Ger, the second Ger Rebbe, who's known as the Svasemes. His name was Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh Leib Alter. His grandfather, Rabbi Chameir, was the Chidushi Harim Rabbi Chameir Alter, the first Ger Rebbe who was a student of the Kotzke Rebbe, when the Kotzker Rebbe passed away in the late 50s, the Chidushi Harim, Rabbi Shemeir, became a very well-known teacher and Hasidic master in Gur, which is not far from Warsaw in Poland. And uh, he's known as the Chidushi Harim. Rim is Reb Yitzchak Meir, Reb Yitzchak that was his name. Reb Yitzchak Alt, they called him Reb Yitzchak Reb Yitzchak Meir. He lost all of it. He had many children and uh, he had 13 children and I think besides one daughter, all passed away during his lifetime, including his son, uh, who uh, would have succeeded him. So he raised his boy, his grandson, whose name was uh, Yehuda Leib, Yehuda Arya Leib. And uh, when the Chidush Arim passed away in the 1860s, 1866, so his grandson took over, and he lived till 1905. His yard site is actually in Shvat, Hey Shvat. And he's known as the Svasemes. He passed away in 1905. He has a commentary on Chumash, from the Torah that he would say on Shabbos. His words are very, very brief and very cryptic, extremely cryptic and concise. But he asks this question, the contradiction in this Pasuk. Moshe says, don't fear, 
because God came so that you should fear. It's what call, what's called Reisha Sasri Lesefer. The beginning of the verse and the end of the verse contradict each other. So the first interpretation comes from him. I'm going to read you his words inside. You'll see how brief they are. And then I'm going to try to explain it the way I understood it. Be'ezer Hashem. And I'm also, we're also going to post it on the source sheets. The Shiurim have source sheets on the yeshiva.net. If you go to the Shir, you have the source sheet so you could see it also inside later if you want to review it. This is Svas Emes Parshas Yisroi. Tof Reish Memches, meaning it was said and written in the year Tof Reish Memches, which would be uh, 1888. I'm going to quote, it's literally two lines. Achainyin, the explanation is, Shahayir etzarech liyoiz kedesha lo yechta. Kamoisha mevur, shayira hili zahir mi mitzvah sloisasa. Yira, or fear there has to be, so the person should not transgress, because Yira is the source, it's the origin for a person to be careful from the negative mitzvahs, from things that one should not engage in. But Yira must never produce the result that one should become distant from serving Hashem, which is what happened, as the verse says, that the nation saw, they trembled, and they went far away. So Moshe says, no, no, this is not a good year, Al-Tiro. That's the end, end of the quote of the Svasamas. What he's really describing here is, I believe a fundamental approach and understanding what the words Yiras Hashem mean usually translated as fear of God. And in the same Pasuk, Moshe is literally contradicting himself. He says, don't fear. Al-Tira, I don't want you to have fear. And then in the same sentence, he says, but God came here and said, you should have fear. Talk about a confusing message. I don't want anybody to have fear. Get rid of all your fear. But you should have fear. And the Svasema says that Moshe is actually talking to the Jewish people about two types of fear. One is productive, constructive, meaningful, inspiring, helpful. It promotes growth, balance, awareness, connection, responsibility, and therefore happiness. There's another type of Yiras Hashem, another type of fear of God that can be destructive, alienating, damaging, causing a certain sense of misery, uh, uh, sadness, melancholy, dejection, and perhaps despair and depression. The antithesis of happiness. They both will use the word yira, fear. But it depends on the context. And that's why Moshe contradicts himself. Don't fear, don't have yira, yes have yira, depends what yira is. 
Because this Pasuk before this Vasemah says, says, Vayarha'am vayanu vayamdu meirachik. The nation was shaken. Vayanu, they were shaken, they were trembling. Vayamdu they stood from far. When Moshe saw that, he says, and they said, we don't want God communicating with us. This is a death sentence. Penomos. Moshe says, Altiro. <laughs> no, no, no. This is not a good year. I don't want you to have this year. But then a moment later, I want you to have year. What's the difference? There is a type of Yiras Hashem, there's a type of fear of God that causes people to become the most distant from God. And we can understand why. Who wants to have a relationship with somebody you're terrified of? You'll forgive me for this illustration, but I think it will be helpful to understand the message. Some of you, some people, have grown up in homes where they were terrified. Terrified from a father, terrified from a mother, terrified from both. Sometimes you were terrified in school. Sometimes you were terrified by other people. Some people sitting in this room or listening or watching know that today, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, you still carry that fear in you. And the common denominator in all the people that I experienced it is how distant they feel from the people they would have hoped they could love and be close with and be connected with. It's just the name of that person. They don't even need the name. The image of that person, it triggers such a sense of distance and alienation and such a sense of of trauma and really dread and agony. It's the reason that so many people I know, young and old, who have shared this with me in person and even more via email, from so many different types of communities, when they hear the word Yires Hashem, fear of God, it triggers within them horrible feelings about themselves, about Hashem, about Judaism, and about everything that comes in, any, anything that's connected to it. And the reason is obvious. Their understanding of fear, and therefore their understanding of fear of God, is immediately associated with the other fears in their life. And usually, to put it bluntly, if I were to ask you as a mature adult, what were these people like that they had to strike such fear into your heart? And you will say, they were all traumatized incompetent, often insecure, did not know how to deal with their own pain, did not know where to put themselves, often people's pleasers, just trying to live for other people, living in a place of agony and suffering, in confinement and in trauma, in their own traps and in their own prisons. They knew, they knew no, they did not know how to communicate. They did not know how to express love. They were afraid of their own emotions. They were afraid of bonding with people, including their loved ones. Very hard for them to trust and therefore to be trusted. And sometimes it was their only language of communication. The language of communication was, I will strike fear into your heart, which by definition meant, I have nothing meaningful to say. All I can do is scare the living daylights out of you. In fact, for some people, it becomes a model of education. 
not even knowing it consciously, but it becomes their model of education. My education is, I'm stronger, I'm more powerful, I have the authority, at this point you need me, you're vulnerable, you're dependent on me, I can scare you. Whether it scare you through physical aggression or through emotional aggression. It's a form of adult bullying. I simply have the power, I simply have the authority. Your emotions, your nature, your equilibrium, your identity becomes irrelevant. I don't even know about it. That's the model. The model is, I scare you and you obey. We all know the challenge with that. The challenge is it's very short-lived. For two reasons. First of all, the damage that that often creates is very profound. People who grow up and inside... They are so emaciated emotionally. They are deprived. They're looking for oxygen. It's so hard for them to connect with themselves and other people. Equally important, often that's where the relationship ends. As long as you can terrify me, I will follow your orders. The moment I'm stronger, the moment I'm older, the moment I become independent, I may go exactly to the opposite extreme and to the furthest length of the earth, not to associate with anybody or anything that even reminds me remotely of what you made me feel. There's an expression in Gemara, kol da'alam gvar. Kol da'alam gvar means whoever is stronger wins. Whoever is more alim, alim is like whoever is a bully, whoever is a greater bully wins. There's no compromise, there's no negotiation, there's no justice. It's like fight it out, whoever is alam gvar. If my model of parenting or education in a classroom or at home or anywhere in my business is basically I'm bigger and I'm stronger and therefore you have to listen to me and that's essentially my method, one day your kid is going to become bigger and stronger. (laughs) One day he's going to be a pretty big kid. (laughs) What happens then? Call the Alam Gvar. It's over. If the definition of the relationship was my power and authority wins... Okay, how long is that going to last? The moment my authority ceases, as a result of people growing up, there goes the influence. And sometimes it's exactly the other way around. The person wants nothing of it. In that sense, some people, and it's it's not comfortable to share, but I think it's important to share, because I think it's important for us to understand, have shared with me, That fear of God for them is the most toxic thing in the world. And whenever they hear the word Yiris Hashem, it triggers such negative emotions that they literally shut down. They cannot hear anymore. What are they hearing? They're hearing of a God who is Khalila like a dictator, a tyrant, who simply wants to strike fear into the hearts of his subjects, there was a Roman emperor who once said, I'd rather that they fear me than they love me. And there's a mitzvah. You have to fear. And you know why you have to fear? Because I'm the boss. And in this case, there's no getting away. You can go to the gym for six hours a day. You could become a heavyweight lifter. You can become a powerful fighter. But God will always remain stronger than you. He managed to defeat Parai. And he will defeat you. May take 10 plagues, may take 20 plagues, may take 60 plagues. If you're really like an obstinate donkey, the plagues will continue. But don't start up because 
the king of kings will ultimately destroy you into ashes and dust. And you will learn your lesson and therefore surrender now. This is the emotional response that many, many people have. Some of them have shared it explicitly. Some of them are so terrified that they can't even share it. Because in order to share it, you have to have a certain element of confidence that you could share it. But some of them are so terrified, they're even afraid to share it. But now I ask a question. What type of relationship can you have with such a God? What type of relationship can you have with such a mother? What type of relationship can you have with such a father or grandfather or grandmother? At best, at best, out of respect, you nod your head. Yes, Tati. Yes, Tati. I will. I will. You go into the other room. You go to your therapist and you say, he is the most dysfunctional, sick tyrant I have ever encountered in my life. He is a control freak. The man is emotionally toxic. When I am around him, I cannot breathe. I cannot live. I do not want to speak to him ever again in my life. The therapist may guide you to call Friday for 60 seconds and say good Shabbos and have boundaries and come to the Hanukkah party for 11 minutes and go into the Sheva Brachas for 13 minutes and go into the Chassan and make a dance and then build a wall. And it's so sad. It's so uh, pathetic. At best, you have such a difficult relationship. And that is what Judaism looks for many people. It's that type of thing. The only thing is that in Judaism, it can become even more dysfunctional because with your parents or with others, you can actually create boundaries. You can go back home. You can move to another country. You could not pick up the phone. That's why there's messages. That's why they created voice notes. So we could speak to each other and actually never speak to each other. You leave a message, then I leave a message, then you leave a message, then I leave a message. We have conversations for 20 years, but we never once spoke to each other. Amachaya. What a wonderful modern invention for relationships. It's sometimes comfortable. I know I also use it. You skip all the formalities and all the social etiquette and how are you and how have you been and how are you feeling? Are you done with the flu yet? How is the winter treating you? What are you doing for Pesach? What are you doing for Hanukkah? Did you prepare Shalach Monas? Did you have fruits for Tubi Shvat, etc.? You get to the point. With the Rebbeinu Shalom, the Master of the World, we're taught there's no boundaries. You're not creating any boundaries. He is right here, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Don't think you're getting away. You're not getting away. There's no walls, there's no boundaries, only in your delusion. And if not in this world, he's also in the next world, my friends. You're laughing. Some of you are laughing. Some are crying inside. But for some people, this is their MO. This is their entire experience of Judaism. And to all these individuals, Moshe speaks and says two words, Altiro. Moshe says, you got this whole thing wrong. God really does not want you to be afraid of him. Altiro. Don't be scared. Don't be terrified. You have nothing to be terrified from. If this fear is causing distance, I don't want to be close to you. You make me too uncomfortable. You all know there are people in whose presence the best of you is brought out. You have such people? No? Nobody? And you have people in whose presence 
The worst of you is brought out. Now everybody is nodding. You have such people? You have both? Okay, good. Which one more? So you're hanging around the right people. Okay. You have people, or you should have people, or I pray that you have people, in whose presence you shine. They somehow help you see your own light. They bring out the best in you. They help you see your own radiance, your own brightness. But there are people who consciously, unconsciously, perhaps inadvertently and due to their own heaviness, in their presence, suddenly the worst of you is brought out. What's actualized? All your demons and skeletons and ghosts. It's fascinating. If God is doing this to you, and therefore you say, I don't want to get close. I don't want to go here. You know, sometimes you're invited to a certain situation, a certain event, and you know when you go there, you're going to have to detox for two weeks. Salt baths, Pilates, stretches, therapy, hiking, spitting it out, talking to like 10 people to get it out of the system, each according to your own methods of dealing with detox, with toxic, toxic stuff. It's like you almost know it and you get pulled in. Now, it's true when you grow and you work on yourself and you uh, know who you really are, then you also know how to handle these situations. You define your environment. You don't allow your environment to define you. But that's avoid. It takes self-work and a lot of self-awareness and a lot of understanding of, of your true power and your true inner spiritual light. But very often, I, I just don't want to go there. It's just too, it's just, it's too complicated. It's just complicated. Just stay home. I want to stay far away. This is not a place I want to. There's an expression in Yiddish. What's the expression? Why should I take a healthy head? You remember your grandmother would say it. <laughs> Which literally means you don't go to a place where there are germs and you can come home with the flu and the virus. You just don't do that. Keep your hands clean. Or even if they're not clean, make sure you don't take your hands and don't touch your nose or your mouth or your ears until you wash your hands. On an emotional level, it means just stay away. Keep your distance. Moshe says, oy, 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 oy. If this is your experience of Hashem, if this is your experience of the divine, if this is your experience of Matan Torah, of Arsinai, I ask you one favor, al you have to get rid of this type of yira. You need to extricate yourself from this type of fear, from this type of dread. Why? Because it's undermining the very relationship. The moment I cannot see God and Hashem as the one who loves me more, as the Baal Shem Tov said, that Hashem loves every Jew more than parents, Love an only child who was born during a time when everybody gave up hope. As he put it, a ben yachid shenoilad lahem la'ezik nusam. An only child who was born when they were already coming in years and didn't think they're going to have children and then they're blessed with one child. One can only imagine the tremendous affection that they have to this child. Of course, all love of parents to children if they're healthy and functional is infinite. And 
extremely powerful, beyond words. But even within such an infinite love, there is that unique love that they have to this only child who they never expected. Says the Baal Shem Tev, even that love doesn't come close to the love that Hashem has to every Jew. The Zohar says, Reb Shimon says, Reb Yehuda says, that if a person would know and feel the love that Hashem has to this person, him or her, he would chase Hashem faster than a lioness chases her prey. I don't know if you ever in Kruger's Park in, uh, in South Africa or other jungles or you've seen uh, documentaries, but you don't want to get in between. You know, that ferociousness, that look, that determination. And the Zoyar says, you think that lioness is chasing her prey? That's called attraction? You would chase Hashem, you would run after the divine much faster and with much more ferocious if you only knew, if one only appreciated the depth, the intensity of the love. Avas Hashem Or Hashem or and the love is unconditional. In other words, the love is indestructible. And the love is non-circumstantial. Not like some days there's love, and other days, you know, I wake up on my left side, God says, today I'm not really interested in you. The love is eternal. Avas oilam is eternal. Forever. Unconditional and indestructible. Ben kachu, ben bonim, as the Gemara says. And as a result of that, the moment fear means I dread you because you're not, I can't really trust you. At the core of fear is I can't trust you. You don't have my back. And if I'm going to be too vulnerable, I'm going to get hurt. Which is really at the core of fear. What's the fear? The fear is that if I'm open, if I'm vulnerable, if I'm honest, you will use it against me. What's one of the most challenging things in a relationship, say in a marriage or other relationships, when couples fear each other? What does it mean, I fear you? Fear doesn't necessarily mean, as I described earlier, you have a bully who's going to hurt you. Fear could sometimes be more subtle, and but equally poisonous. Fear is the fear of disapproval, the fear that if I share with you who I really am, you'll use it against me. We know situations in a marriage, a husband may share with his wife some deep vulnerable fears or experiences or the other way. And then of course the next day they get into an argument and he or she uses yesterday's ammunition, boom, backstab. And sometimes in addition to the stab, this twirling the knife too. In other words, I exposed myself, I shared my vulnerabilities, but ultimately I knew I can't trust you. And you know what happens to such people? They close up and this time it may be for good. Because if I was backstabbed as a child, I was open with somebody I trusted and then they used it against me. And now you get married and you try it again and it happens again. What do you do now? Boom. Your heart closes and sometimes it's forever. You never trust anybody again. In other words, I'm living in a modality of lack of trust. And this is a very serious issue when a child gets betrayed. Even if it's not intentional, but when we betray the trust of a child, it's not just, okay, you betrayed their trust, you're still doing a lot of other things. Sometimes it creates a very deep wound, a scar, a trauma that's very, very hard to recover from. You may not see it, but 20 years later in their relationship, they can't trust. 
they really can't trust. They're almost expecting the other person to attack them. Do you know what I'm talking about? And this could be unconscious. I may not know that I'm dealing with it, but because I have this from childhood in my relationships today, I may not be able to really trust you. And it takes so much inner work to be able to reconfigure the neural pathways in your brain to be able to cultivate the muscle of trust through neuroplasticity. And it's not easy. Because that muscle may have not been used for 25, 35 years because the last time I opened it up, it came back in vengeance to haunt me. So therefore I say it's much easier to live life from a place of distance. And some of us operate in that mode. But our soul cries because we can't connect. We live with people. But never with people. We live in our own world that people just happen to be around us. And it's almost I have to peek out every time I want a little connection. Because I can't be completely present in the relationship. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? So I'm not crazy, right? Okay. This is a very painful reality. I really feel that when I expose myself, I'm going to get hurt and I'm going to get hurt badly. And therefore... I choose to remain in isolation. It's a much safer place. The moment I... How was your experience with God when it comes to this? Deep, deep down, I want to stay far away because I cannot experience the full trust, the full love. If I don't know that you have my back 24 hours a day, what does it mean to trust somebody? I'm talking about real trust, top level of trust. We call it bitachen. Bitachen comes from the word betach, certainty, batuach. In Hebrew, they call insurance bituach, right? <laughs> bituach loomi. So I don't know if insurance and bitachen is the same thing. I'm not sure. It's a separate subject. But the word betach, Yisrael betach Bashem. The word betach, betach, for sure, betach. You know, they tell, you, they tell an old story that there was an Israeli. He made an Aliyah in 1972. And uh, he needed a telephone for the house. So he calls up the telephone company in Israel. And he says, can I have a telephone? They say, you will have to wait eight months. Eight months for a telephone? Yeah, we have a shortage. And generals come first, commanders come first, uh, people in uh, in high, high mayors and people in important positions, they need telephones first. They come first. In eight months, we are hoping, we are hoping to get some telephones and we're going to try to give you a telephone. So he says, really? This, this is the minimum? He says, yes, yes, yes. There's no question before eight months, don't even try calling back. It's a waste of time. So he says in Hebrew, he says, Bemet, entikva, entikva lekabel mugdam yoter. There's no hope to get a telephone early. He says, chas v'shalom. Etzleinu en omrim, entikva. He says, we Jews don't say, there's no hope. We just don't say that. He says, he says, as yesh tikva? Yesh tikva? So there's hope, he says, which means uh, there's hope, but no possibility. 
Hope you should hope, but en siku. En siku, yesh tikva, you can hope, but it's not likely to ever happen within eight months. Yeah. But betach means certain. Where does certainty come from? Full trust. How can I really, really trust somebody? Think about a person. And I'm going to raise this question. You don't have to all answer at once. Is there somebody in your life that you really trust on this level? I don't mean they're nice, they're fine. A lot of fine people. Everyone sitting in this room is a wonderful person. Look where you are. If you needed proof. There's a lot of wonderful and extraordinary people, but I'm talking about trust on this level. It's very, very powerful. It's also life transformative. But could I even do it? Even if the person I know is maybe capable of that level of the relationship, am I capable of that level of a relationship? It works both ways. Remember, if I'm living with a trauma from the past, it's very, very hard for me with other people. And then with God? My brother once shared with me that he met a professor in Iowa. He was traveling in Ohio. In Ohio. He was talking to a professor once he met him. And this professor said, you know, I once had a very interesting uh, audience with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Years ago, he was a secular Jew. He says, really, what was the nature of it? He says, it was the early years. I wanted to come see him. I was curious about different things about him and Jews and and religious Jews. And I went into him and I asked him a question. And the question I asked him is, people call you a Rebbe. A Rebbe. What is the definition of a Rebbe? So he says, Rabbi Shneis in the Lubavitcher Rebbe looked at me. And he says, a Rebbe is a good friend. So he looks like, uh, you know, okay. So the Rebbe said, you seem disappointed by my answer. He says, yeah, anticlimactic. (laughs) Anticlimactic. He says, why anticlimactic? He says, I have many good friends. They're all Rebbes. That's the Rebbe, a good friend. So he said, so the Rebbe said, Professor so-and-so, maybe our definitions of good friends are not identical. How do you identify? How do you identify the definition of, what's the definition of a good friend? He says, well, I have many of them. We hang out together. We schmooze. We play cards. We have a coffee. We go play a game of bridge. We drink gin. We go golfing together. We speak politics, philosophy, or whatever the particular branch of wisdom he was in. I have many good friends. We invite each other to milestones, you know, a bar mitzvah, a wedding, a birthday party, a unique anniversary. We go out sometimes. Friends. Rebbe said, those are acquaintances, perhaps close acquaintances. Let me tell you how I would define a real good friend. Somebody in whose presence you can think out loud. Somebody to whom you can share everything about your life. Everything. There is not a secret you must withhold for the following reason. You know that their relationship to you will not be affected by anything they will discover about you. They will still love you 
and be connected to you in exactly the same way as if you have not shared everything about them, everything about yourself. And therefore, you could be completely bare. You can strip yourself from any defenses or cover-ups on any level because you know it will not affect the relationship at all. And if it will not affect the relationship at all, it will only make it stronger because it means that you are really open with the person. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe looked at him and he said, Professor so-and-so, how many friends do you have? He said, zero. So he said, so you see, it's not so simple to be a good friend. It's not so simple to be a good friend. I heard from Rabbi Shleim Kalbach. You remember Shleim Kalbach? <laughs> I heard from him the following. Shleim Kalbach, as you know, went his own way. He was an interesting person. A lot of different opinions about him, which I'm not going to discuss at the moment. But a brilliant composer, a brilliant musician, a big heart, and a spiritual soul. And also a flawed human being, like all human beings, or many human beings. I heard from Shleim Kalbach a fascinating observation. This was shortly after the passing of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1994. And he said, he said, you know, how long does it take to build a real friendship? You know, Shlomo Lechavu was into love, 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 love and friendships. How long does it take to build a real friendship? You don't build a friendship in an hour. There's people you grew up with your whole life, you know? Your next door neighbor, girls in school. And you may, you'll always say good Shabbos, you'll always be friendly, you'll always have a smile on your face when you see them. But... It's not necessarily a friendship where you could be completely open. To build a real friendship takes time. Trust. I have to be able to really trust you. You have to be able to trust me. It goes both ways. It's not so easy. Even in a marriage, it doesn't happen, as I. The stages, stages until there's real trust. And you'll see that there are certain things you will not tell people even when they're close to you. There's still things you only tell yourself. Shleimullah said, I could tell you from experience over decades that when people walked into the Rebbe's room, they never met him before, and in five minutes they shared their most intimate, vulnerable secrets that they never maybe even had the courage to share with themselves, never mind with other people. How did that happen? How did that happen? So he said, Shleimullah said, I'll tell you, because when you came in, you felt that he knows it already. That's what Shleimullah said. But I'd add, based on the previous story I said, that's one type of miracle, but there's even a deeper miracle. You know, there are miracles that are supernatural, and there are greater miracles. And greater miracles are the miracles of humans. A greater miracle than him knowing it already was that nothing you could say would affect the relationship. Let's face it. I'm afraid. If I tell you everything, yeah, what are you going to think about me? Even if you were going to smile, but really, what are you going to think about me? But what if I really know for sure that the relationship remains as my relationship with myself? Now, sharing it with you becomes the greatest pleasure and privilege in the world. Because it allows me to connect on that level.
And if a person can have such a friend, <laughs> that's special. If a person can have such a marriage, such a relationship, it's extraordinary. Says Moshe Rabbeinu to the Jewish people, that's how I want you to experience God. That's how I want you to experience Hashem. And even more than a friend. And even more than a child. Because let's face it, a child begins in the womb of the mother. And even before that, a child originates in the seed and in the egg of parents. But ultimately, a child becomes independent. Hopefully, if mommy lets. God doesn't only got your back. He is your back. You, 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 you are not, not only come from Him. You're a piece of Him. You're a fragment of the divine. Not only does He have your back as two separate beings, it's like, I like you, and even if you're vulnerable to me, and you tell me about your skeletons, I'm still going to pick up the phone tonight. I'm not going to say, oh, she's giving me such headaches. That may be with a close friend here. The unity, the symbiosis is indescribable. Altiro, why are you standing in a distance? Why are you running away from this relationship? What is your perception of Hashem that's causing you a desire not to be close? What is it? What is it that He's doing to me that makes me conjure up an image of dread and negativity? And I'm going to ask you to do a little experiment in your own time. Okay, this is the experiment I'm going to ask you to do. When you get home or at any point today or tomorrow or any time you'd like, and this is not so easy to do, write down on a piece of paper or in your own mind the first instinctive image or word that comes up when you hear the word God, Hashem, Ribbon Shalom, Bashefer, Abishta, Hailike Bashefer, Hashem Yisbarach, Der Barimker. You might say nothing. <laughs> I'm not talking about the words and images that come up after contemplation. I'm talking about the instinctive, momentary image or picture or experience that comes up when you hear that word. Now, I want to tell you something. Most people are unaware of what it is because we're not so comfortable with it. So it's more in the unconscious. But if you allow yourself to see it, you may discover very powerful truths about yourself. And I'll tell you why. Most of us develop our perceptions of God when we're two years old. Some of us when we're three, some of us when we're five, because that's when we hear the word. Now you could be 45 or 65 or 95 or 25, you never change that definition. You know a lot more stuff, but that the essential definition is not changed, it's still coming up. And that definition may be a very, very positive one. Maybe a very, very negative one. Anybody wants to share? What's your instinctive image that comes up? Warmth. Love. Wow, that's the instinctive, yeah? A father, a father. Looks like a real male, huh? (laughs) Who can give you anything? Fear comes up. Somebody who looks very ancient. Somebody who looks very ancient, okay. Old, yeah. He's here. That's the instinctive image. He's here. Embracing tranquility, okay. 
Nice. It's an English court of law. The judges with the wigs on their heads. You ever saw? You ever saw the paintings? Huh? You ever saw those images, especially from the medieval times? Till today, yeah, till today. And it's the wig, huh? The judges with the wigs and the hammer. Just peering at you. And you don't even know they have an emotion, because judges are not supposed to express emotions, right? That ultimate authority. Okay, thank you for your honesty. I say he's like my best friend. You were listening to the class? You're cheating, aren't you? Okay, nice. Yeah? Whatever you say is fine. I just want your honest. It's not about judgment here, huh? Different skins for different people. Yes. Look at him and think in various times of your life, you see him as that savior that comes up. Yeah. When you're five, you have an accident. Yeah. The doctor that helps you and then... Your mother when you're 15. <laughs> your mother when you're 15. What's your mother when you're 15 like? <laughs> you're saying Hashem is always evolving in your mind. Excellent. He's always evolving. What do you want to say? A beam of light. Okay. Others will say a black cloud. <laughs> Somebody told me, right? Piercing eyes, like what you said, piercing eyes. What color eyes? Blue. Okay, at least it's blue, not black. Okay, we like blue eyes. Anybody else wants to share? Always watching you. Google? <laughs> Google is Rosh Hashanah's God. <laughs> yeah, always watching you. Anybody else? Now, I'm not talking about an insight. I'm talking about an instinctive, an instinctive experience that follows the word immediately. It doesn't even follow it. It comes with it. So many of you said very beautiful and positive things. Yeah? That's fine. Very, like, unreachable. Like, not, not really being able unreachable, without the ability to connect, just something detached. What does that something look like? Like a big cloud, a dark cloud? Gray, gray cloud that you can't touch and you can't reach. Not a person. So your mamish can't reach it. Okay. Thank you, yeah. Wow, okay. So your image of God is somebody starts out loving, and then when you want to continue, he's gone, or she's gone. They disappear. Your father left when you were four. Okay. Okay, your relationship with your father, whatever that's like. So her father left when she was four, so you're trusting your father, and then one day you come home, and your father is gone. What often happens is our God becomes a reflection of our people of authority. My father, my mother, my principal, my teacher, my nanny. And if that's the case, whatever they are just becomes God, but much bigger. Which means all the flaws of my father, God has a million times the amount because God is God. So he's not just my father, he's like my father with everything in the most complete way. So if your father is a loving teddy bear, right? 
Some of your fathers are that way. So that's God. And if your father is different, so that also becomes God. That's the purpose of this class. She wanted to know if we're stuck or we can evolve. So I said, that's the purpose of this class. Hopefully. But you cannot evolve if you don't identify what you have to evolve from. Right? Did you understand the brilliant statement I just said? Okay, thank you. Thank you for the validation. That's why identifying it is so critical. Because I'm not going to evolve if I can't identify that this is what I want to evolve from. And then when it comes up, I can put it in its place. I can quarantine it. I can give it its place and not allow it to define my unconscious relationship with God. Because if I don't identify it, it's an unconscious relationship but it fuels all the other relationships and it could sometimes poison it. So Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people, the first thing I want you to know is Al-Tiro. <laughs> There's never a reason to be distant. The greatest opportunity in life is to have the closest, most powerful, intimate relationship with Hashem. Not only He has your back, He has your front and your internal everything between the front and the back, because it's not even a relationship of two separate entities, but I'm a good guy, and I'm a good friend, and this person is a Rebbe, and this person has confidence, and this person is loving, so therefore you can open up to me. When you open up to me, that me, that you that you you are opening up, is essentially coming from Hashem, it's part of Him. And therefore... The love is not just unconditional and eternal, but the relationship is one that cannot even be described in words. It's potency, it's power, it's might. And therefore, Al-Tiro, if you find yourself conjuring an image of God that's causing distance and toxicity and negativity... He wants to punish me. He wants to get me. Somebody wrote me an email. Somebody came over to me after a class and said, I'm miserable. I said, why? And she said, because life is going so well. So I said, why would you be miserable? And these are her words. I kid you not. If life is going so well, the question I have nagging at me day and night is, what is God planning? Life was never going so well. He obviously has something up his sleeves that he's planning. That's fear. Is that Jewish Yeris Hashem? That's not Jewish Yeris Hashem. That's very, very horrible. Get rid of it. I said, yeah, I'll tell you exactly what he's planning. Imagine you have a child. She was, she's a mother. I said, you have a child. And your child calls you from school, a teenager, and says, Mom, I'm doing great. Right? Doesn't that happen every day? Kid calls from school. I love my teachers. They're like unbelievable. Especially my Navi teacher and my history teacher. They're like unbelievable. We're having a gamer next week and I'm so looking forward to it. I'm so upset there's going to be a Pesach vacation soon. I wish I could just stay here. I love my principal. I love my friends. There's no pressure. There's no clicks. We get along so well. This is the most beautiful place in the world and I'm so happy, mommy. Do you need anything? Absolutely not. My life is a blessing. It's a dream telephone call, right? And often a dream. 
And imagine a mother, I'm not talking about the healthiest mother in the world, but a regular mother who has issues. And you say to her, hmm, so now let me figure out how I could make your life miserable. This is really not good that you're so happy. Let me figure out in two or three weeks, I will make sure to do something that will really turn your life into chaos. What would you call such a mother? Only dysfunctional? A marshas, yeah? Mamasha marshas. And yet people have no issue doing this to God every day of their lives. <laughs> and it's almost like Judaism. And then I looked at her and I asked her this question. She said, no, I was taught that you're supposed to suffer. And that way you get schar in Olam Haba. Because you suffer here, you get schar in Olam Haba. And for everything, there's a quote that's completely misunderstood and taken out of context. So I said, okay, listen. Forget about everything. Just explain to me the logic of this, okay? God didn't have a world. He creates this world. Why? So you should be miserable in this world so he can give you reward in another world by making you miserable in this world. Can you worship such a God honestly? <laughs> like, you can trust such a God? You can deal with this? Does this resonate on any level? She says, you don't have to trust, you just have to serve. I said, wow, sounds like North Korea to me. This is what North Korea is. <laughs> There's no relationship. Just serve and be as miserable as you have to. I'm like, trust me, you have no belief in God, you have no relation with God, you're not serving God. You're serving some pagan dictatorship and tyrant. It has nothing to do with Hashem. It has nothing to do with Judaism. <laughs> Just give God the credit that you give to a normal mother and father. Not more and not less. A normal mother and father who would love their children to thrive and blossom and be happy and suck the marrow out of life and actualize their potential and live a great and blessed life on every level. Isn't that the wish of every mother and father who is normal, or even half normal? Even if you're not normal, but you're half normal? Everybody's their first bracha, nachas for my children, my children should be happy, my children should be successful, my children should find a shidduch, my children should have panasim, my child should be healthy, my child should find their way. Just give God that credit, that's it. Like pachas, like Says this Vasemis, but then Moshe adds a second clause. What's the second clause? Shahayir itzarichlias kedeshalo yachta. There's another, it says, it's Hashem alakechatira. You should fear God. Altiro. That's why he continues, Bavurtiya yirosay alpnechem levilti techeto. Yira means one thing. A yira that helps a person Stay away from something that will disconnect us. What is Yiris Hashem? Yiris Hashem means, I am, listen to this definition, I am afraid of ruining such a beautiful and powerful relationship. It is too good, it is too awesome to disregard, to dismiss as inconsequential. Imagine you have that best friend in the world. Imagine. And there's a conversation of gossip about that person. And it's juicy. 
And they want to pull you into the conversation. And sometimes there's a temptation. We have temptations. Maybe a very juicy Friday night conversation around the compote. You will not join that conversation. You will say, sorry, I have to go, and this is really inappropriate. Why? Because your friend is going to find out and punish you. He may never find out, or she may never find out. Even if they will, they probably won't punish you. In fact, that type of friend that the Rebbe described is not punitive. May never punish you. It's much deeper. It's not these. She may never punish me, may never punish me. I can't. I'm too scared. I'm afraid to ruin such a powerful relationship. It's such an act of betrayal to him, to her, to me, to our friendship, to the space we create for each other, to how they enriched my life. Let's take a good marriage. Again, you'll forgive my illustration, but I think it's an important illustration. Especially for a lot of people who listen to this or watch this. A person has a great marriage. Now, people have temptations. It's called a Yetzirah. I once asked a fellow, you go on a business trip for three weeks. Are you ever tempted to do something that's immoral? He says, there are temptations. I said, would you? He said, no. I said, why? Because your wife may find out and she'll punish you. No dinner for three months. No laundry for a year. She'll throw you out of the house. Okay, if that's what you need to stop you from sinning, no dinner for a year. You got to go to the restaurant for a year. But that's not a relationship. You're afraid. You know why you're afraid? Not because somebody may never find out. It's not about finding out. You're afraid to ruin such a priceless gift that you have in your life. It's called the relationship we have with each other. The honesty we have with each other. The trust we have with each other. The confidence you have in me and I have in you. And in one moment I'm going to destroy it even if nobody finds out. But truth knows. I know. God knows. It'll never be the same. Unless I do tshuva and I confront it, which I can do. But we don't do echtavash if I don't sit in order to do tshuva. That's yira. That's a beautiful yira. That's not yira. That's not fear that distances me from you. It's the fear of being distant. You see the difference? There is yira that causes distance. There is fear that causes distance. And there is fear from distance. It's not fear as a result of distance. We're distance. I'm afraid of you. And that even exasperates, it intensifies the distance. It's fear because we're so close. And I am afraid to ruin this. This is not something you can easily find. For 10 minutes of temptation, for a half an hour of temptation, even for three days of temptation, you're going to ruin what you built a lifetime and what is going to last a lifetime and is going to be transmitted to generations through epigenetics. Because just as trauma is inherited... Love is also inherited. And faith is also inherited. Today we know that trauma is genetic. You know that. They did from research with Holocaust survivors, children and grandchildren, and other fields. They always thought trauma is not genetic. Today we know epigenetics is transferred. Love is also. 
Faith is also. Confidence is also. That's why we say ma'aminim b'nei ma'aminim. How does my Zayda's faith help me? Your grandfather voted Democratic. You have to vote Democrat? <laughs> you ever heard that? It's the other way around. You say they voted this way. Some of you vote mamish opposite of what your parents voted. Your parents were such loyal Democrats, Jews of the 1940s and 1950s, the Democratic Party equaled God. Today the Democratic Party, I'm not going to say what it equals, but it's something else. It's all about the Benjamins. Since when do I have to vote what my parents vote for? I have to go into my father's vocation? My father believed in Christianity. Somebody's grandfather is a Christian. Means he's a Christian? He may not believe. By Jews, it doesn't work that way. How? Because there's a spiritual genetic mutation, maybe even a physical genetic mutation. As a result of that, I'm afraid to ruin such a powerful relationship. It's too good. Too good to be true. Yes, I am afraid. I am afraid of betraying this level of connection that we have. This is a year that comes from love. It's a year that can only come when there's love. This is a fear that can only come when there's love, trust, camaraderie. Here, yira is productive, constructive. It brings to joy. I am afraid, and this type of fear allows me to live a life in which I abstain from all actions, words, thoughts, conscious activities that will compromise and betray and even dilute the powerful relationship. And let's remember, the deeper the relationship, the more subtle the betrayal can be. And therefore, one has to be more careful. Meaning, if our relation, you know, in davening, we have a situation where there's different parts of davening where you're allowed to make different interruptions. But in Shemayna Esra, there's no interruptions. Like even in the middle of Kriya Shema, you could stop for Kedusha and other things. In the middle of Shemayna Esra, there's no interruptions. Why? It's a different level of a relationship where even a holy interruption is called an interruption. Like you'll have marriages, they're very, very tight. And for another couple, that wouldn't be called an interruption in the relationship. But for this couple, it is an interruption. You understand what I'm saying? Based on how deep the connection is, is more easier to destroy it. Because even a subtle thing comes in between it because there's so much trust. In other words, if we're mamish, mamish one, then even a subtle, a subtle mechitza, a subtle... Uh, a subtle act of turning away, of drifting away, which in another couple wouldn't even be noticed. <laughs> it would be called a good marriage. But for this couple, it was a betrayal. We say in Krishna, Don't follow your hearts and your eyes, which you follow astray. The word Zoynim comes from the word Zoyna. Isha Zoyna v'chalal in Chumash, Barzah Emer. So the Balatanya writes in the Kutatayra, I think Baaloyscha, that the ultimate definition of a Zoyna in Halacha, Znus, is an Ashes Ish, meaning somebody who's married. Because there's a very big difference between a relationship with somebody who's single, somebody who's married. 
Somebody who's single, they're not married. Somebody who's married, it betrays a relationship. And if the marriage is very powerful, it's a different level of betrayal. He says, there's different levels of people have relationships with God. And therefore, znus means something else for different Jews. As he puts it there, and it's a very, very subtle idea. He says, there are Jews that Tivus Heter could betray the relationship more than other people, much more serious thing. Tivus Heter means a permissible craving but a moment where I have hesachadas from Hashem. I'm eating my vanilla ice cream, or my chocolate mousse, or my uh, chocolate milkshake. And that moment I had hesachadas from God. So take a, take a look at a marriage. There's marriages that are pretty weak. So now you go, you're not thinking about it. Oh, big deal, what's the big deal? But more or less you're good. But when you have a friendship or a relationship that is mamish the deepest of the deep, so even a subtle betrayal could be very, very painful. So he says, the Torah is saying, you don't understand how close God is to you. It's so close that even the most subtle turning away and say, God, not now. <laughs> not now, not now. Without bringing that into the relationship is already a concept of loisa surah. It's already a betrayal. Not because of pressure, but because of the connection. This doesn't mean you have to be with your spouse 24 hours a day and not let her go to coffee with a friend. But it means going to a coffee with a friend is not a escape of a marriage or of the relationship. It's part of it. A healthy couple wants each party to, uh, to promote its own interests and do, and do what it likes to do, etc., not to be possessive. Hesach doesn't mean you don't do other things. Hesach means it's not an escape from the relationship. So this is how the Svas Emes deals with the contradiction. There's two types of year. These are year, Moshe says, Altiro, if it's keeping you distant from Hashem, get rid of this fear and this dread. You have a wrong perception of what is happening. Hashem loves you infinitely, intensely, unconditionally, eternally, even on a bad day. There's no reason to run from this relationship. You could be as vulnerable as you have to. Show up with everything because there's not going, not going to, he's not going to tell you, oh, this, I'm not interested. You're not my child anymore. Get out of my house. You got the wrong God for this. You're worshiping not the Jewish God. Then my Shinabenu says, key, you know why I'm telling you not to be scared because God wants to elevate you because he wants his year on you that you shouldn't sin. Is this a schizophrenic message, Galila? No, it's the same thing. I don't want you to fear him as somebody distant and detached and disconnected. I want you to understand why he appeared in order to be the closest ever to you. And therefore he wants his yira on you to cause lability techato, not to transgress a relationship, not to break a relationship. That is just simply too splendid, too rich, too amazing, too beautiful, too exquisite to ruin. And that's the definition of hate. What does hate mean? We translate hate as sin. It's the proper translation, but it's not the real translation. In Hebrew, you know where the word hate comes from. It says by 
Shol HaMelech, right? He would shoot the arrows. Koileya El Hasara, Veloy. Anybody remembers? Yechta. He always hit the target and he never sinned. Well, he never, he never missed. Chet means miss. Basheva tells David HaMelech, Vahayisi Ani Uvni Shlomo, Chatoyim. If Adonio succeeds, you on the throne, me and Shlomo will be sinners? No, no, no. We'll be missing. We'll be eliminated. Because we are the enemy of Adoniyahu. So what does hate really mean? Hate means whenever I miss. I miss. What am I missing? What's this concept of hate? concept of hate is I'm missing the target. What am I missing? I'm missing the opportunity to hold on to this connection with infinity, to this relationship that is absolutely powerful. I want to conclude, this is going to be very brief and very concise. I'm not going to elaborate and explain it, even though it, can, it, 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 it requires and would warrant another few hours. But I'm going to share this very briefly and concisely, and that is a second interpretation on this contradiction that comes from the Balatanya in a sefer called Maimori Admur Hazokin Haktsarim, the brief discourses of the Balatanya. This is a different layer, and I just have to say that this is a, a very, very profound idea. It really needs a lot of initiation and introduction, but I just want to share it with you. Those who have heard classes of mine on the teachings and the works of the Balatanya will understand this much more. But whatever you understand, you understand. But it's good at least to hear whatever we understand. And even those of us who understand don't fully understand, trust me. I'm going to quote his words, and then I'm going to explain. It's a longer discourse. I'm not going to quote everything, just a few lines. Omnam ha'inyin. Remember the two questions we asked on the post. The service of the angels is always with yira and pachat, awe and fear. Since they have a spiritual ego, therefore they can be afraid in the presence of somebody who is much grander than them. But the Jewish soul is higher than the angel. It ascended in God's thought, meaning it's rooted in God's essence. So a neshama is considered ayin mamish, which means it has no separate spiritual substance. A real soul doesn't have yira, fear. Because they are completely absorbed and one with the infinite one. There's nobody here to say that he fears or she fears. Because their entire identity is one with the infinite, unlike the angels. So Moshe says, Altiro, Kilabavur Nasois Escha. Matan Torah came to pick you up. You don't need fear. I 
there was a concept of fear, that's when you're on a lower level. The ultimate purpose is is to be elevated to a space where you're completely where you completely one with the Ein Saif. And over there, Altiro, there's no Yire in front of somebody who's, whose relationship you cherish or somebody who's so great and awe because there's no separateness. You know when you need Yire? When you're in a situation that you're capable of sinning. What the Balatanya is saying is that Moshe now after Matan Torah is revealing to the Jewish people the ultimate essence of Judaism. And that is Altiro. Don't be afraid. Year is for the Malachim. It's not for you. Because fear, even awe, is always, I am mesmerized. I melt away in awe or in fear from something that is so grand, something big. We're not talking here in an abusive way. On the contrary, we're talking in a very beautiful way. You know, sometimes you see a scene and you're just in awe. You're like, you're awestruck. That's not abusive. That's, that's amazing. Or the year I spoke about before, I'm afraid of ruining such a relationship. It's just too good. It's too beautiful. All this presupposes one condition, and that is, I am in a relationship with you. But he says, the essence of a neshama is not yesh. The essence of a neshama is ayin. The essence of a neshama is that it's completely one with the divine itself, without any separation whatsoever. So that in the real experience of a neshama, there's no experience of yira. Because the experience of yira denotes that there is some form of separateness. There's you, and there's I, and I am overtaken by awe. I'm overtaken by an emotion of fear, or any emotion. Whenever I write to you, I love you, there's always I. I know in texts we don't do that. Because we don't follow ground. We don't even write you. There's no you anymore. It's a you. But really... Right? Any emotion is always preceded by the word I, because that's what it is. It's my emotion. That's why if you don't believe you exist, your emotions can't be healthy. Because if I think that the I is a shmata, so how important can the love of me be? So emotions, in a good way, always are defined by an I. But the real essence of a soul is not an experience of awe of God, but complete oneness with Ein Saif complete alignment, and not just alignment, complete oneness with infinity, what he calls to be subsumed, to be nullified, where the very eye of the soul, the very eye of the Jew, is one with the eye of Hashem. So therefore, came to elevate you to a place beyond a spiritual experience, to a place of complete Oneness with infinity. You are the manifestation of the divine in this world. So it's not that there's no yira because you're distant. There's no yira because you're beyond an emotional connection. Emotional connections represent some level of distance. And within that distance, I'm overcoming it through an emotion. 
And therefore Moshe says, but I know you may not always be able to operate on that level of oneness. So that's why he says, he wants to elevate you, but sometimes you may experience yourself as a self. Here is where Yiris Hashem is so powerful and so significant because it gives you the appreciation that this relationship is so special that you don't want to use it. You don't want to ruin it. It gives you the appreciation that this relationship is so infinite, you're in awe of it. So when the person goes down to a place, he says, mata mata afilu yesh. When a person is in a state of yesh, not in a state of ayin, there, there is a tzoyrech here. There we need them. How do I connect to you? I connect to you through emotion. I connect to you through experience. So what we call the deepest form of experience is really the level of a malach. It's not the level of a neshama. What we call the deepest form of spiritual experience is I'm crazy about you. I love you. I'm in awe of you. That's already a diluted relationship. That means there's there's a little separateness. So it's good because I sometimes feel separate. And this is where love comes in and this is where Yira comes in and this is what keeps me away from hate, as we explained before. But Moshe Rabbeinu says, the ultimate is Al-Tirol. You should realize that the relationship is even deeper than experience. It's even deeper than an emotional experience. It's a relationship in, in, in complete silence, in complete awe. There's no two things anymore. It's completely echad, completely one. And he says, that's pshat. The Gemara says that uh, Yira, Yira, the Gemara says in Masechus Shabbos, that Yira is Tara Lidirosa. It's the gate to go into the home. So he says, the gate brings you in. But then there is the home itself, the bedroom itself. So he says, love and awe are the gates. What are gates? The door is not the place of an intimate relationship. But without the door, you can't get into the home. He says, love and awe are the gates. Meaning this is how you get into the relationship. But the ultimate relationship is, you become completely one. The Gemara says in Brachas, You should always walk in to Shul and count the shear, the measurement, the distance of two doors, and then start davening. What does this mean? So most commentators explain, it's a very practical instruction. Don't walk into shul and within a split second start davening. Because you have to first gain your composure and settle down. So walk in. How long does it take to go through one door and then to another door, another door? It takes a few seconds, right? You have to go through the foyer, the hallway, and the second door. Three seconds, five seconds, ten seconds. Go into shul, sit down, relax, or stay standing. Get yourself together and start davening. You don't just walk in and you're already davening. In other words, it has to be with Yishuv Hadas, with Kavana, with mindfulness, with attentiveness, with concentration, etc. That's a literal interpretation. The Balatanya says, Before davening, you have to go through two doors. One is the door of Yira, and one is the door of Ava. One is the door of love, and one is the door of awe. These are the gates, the doors that create an opening between us our emotional feelings for each other, our experiences. There is love, and then there is the fear of ruining the love. 
That's the two doors. There's the door of love, and the door of love brings to a second door, the door of fear. Because if we really love, I'm too afraid to ruin this. Too good to be true. Too good to be true. I'm not going to ruin this. There's yet the fear, yet the year that we call awe. Awe of infinity. Awe of greatness. Where you're like, you're mesmerized, you melt. Those are the two doors. Then he says, And then, you'll come to Tefillah. He says, what's Tefillah? After you go in the two doors, which is Yira, then you come to Altiro, a place that's beyond Yira, completely one, where there's no I and him. There's no I and thou. But you come to the ultimate core of the self, the Ani. Ani in its core is the same letters like Ayin, Aleph, Nun, Yud. Ani is the word for ego, right? Ani, I, 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 I. Really, what's Ani? If you configure, reconfigurate the Ani, what do you have? Aleph, Yud, Nun. An, Ayin. What's Ayin? Ayin is nothingness. So what is it? What is it? The whole objective of life is to take the Ani and to reveal that the Ani is really Ayin. In other words, the ultimate Ani, the ultimate I, is not separate. The ultimate I is completely Echad. It's completely one with the one. So that even year, even the instinct of awe and fear, as powerful and as amazing as it is, Moshe says, that's for angels. It's for Malachim. Malachim, that's good. Hashem wanted to pick you up. Yisrael, although b'machshava, you're not rooted in the yesh of existence. You're rooted in the ayin of existence. And your ultimate truth is when your entire sense of self is subsumed in the ultimate self and the two selves become absolutely and eternally one. Have a wonderful week. So every every soul has its shlichus and its way it connects with Hashem. And it fulfills its mission by connecting with Hashem in its own unique way. The Jewish soul is a Jewish through the Jewish soul, the non-Jewish soul through the non-Jewish soul, unless there's conversion. And really every creature, beyond Jews and non-Jews, every single creature becomes connected to Hashem in its own unique way. So it has its mission and its purpose, and that's what it needs to fulfill in order to find its connection. The angel is supposed to be the angel, and the neshama is supposed to be the neshama. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.